as I've continued just talking and ministering with people, God just reinforced that. Just so much hardship going on. And then we have the holidays, right? All the busyness of the holidays and just the family drama of holidays, right? Or just the pain of family or relatives not being there because they've passed on. And and it just seems like the holidays remind us of them. And so with all this hardship, I just wanted to offer some joy, to offer some um, comfort to you guys, and to remind you of the God that we serve. It's so easy to lose track of God's goodness and his power to take care of us in these times. And it's hard to praise God and it's hard to worship him when it just seems like things just keep stacking on each other over and over and over again. And there's there's no end in sight. But as we'll see today, this is what we should be doing because God is good. God is in control. And God will take care of us in our hard times. We'll be looking at Psalms 34 today. A Psalms about comfort and the protection of the Lord. Psalms are just these wonderful songs to pray through in times of trouble as well as times of joy. Because they often can express our emotions when we don't have the words to speak ourselves. Now before we dive into this text, I want to look at the situation surrounding the writing of this particular psalm. They say if you truly want to understand a song, you must know the circumstances around the creation, for, creation of it, right? So if you know who T. Swift was dating and broke up with, right, like the song has more meaning to you. Or if you look at the great old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, I mean, it's already a powerful song, but when you understand and you hear the story behind it, you really get an idea of just God's power working in the author's life to be able to pen those words. And I feel the same is true with this psalm in David's life. So let's just take a little snapshot of David's life. So probably a few years before this, right, he was anointed king, even though Saul was still acting as the king. He had slayed Goliath and slayed many other enemies of Israel. And so he has just gained all this popularity, all this status. He is this famous guy. Life is going good for him. He's married. He's got lots of friends. I mean, life is good. But then something happens. Saul snaps. And suddenly he's trying to kill David. This forces David to flee his home, to flee his family, and go to a foreign land. But this is just not a foreign land. This is enemy territory. This is the land of Goliath. And so he's in enemy territory where he has made his name from killing these people, and now he has to live among him. And I'm sure there was thoughts of, and fear of retaliation taking place, of people noticing him, and noticing that he doesn't have his army with him anymore. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who wanted to settle the odds with him. And he had no supplies, 
other than a few loaves of bread and Goliath's sword that he got from the priest at Nile. No doubt he was scared, lonely, hungry, anxious. I mean, he's not sure if he's going to live or die. Will he ever get to return home? Will he ever get to be king? And so it's shortly after God delivers him out of these circumstances and reflecting on this situation that he pens this poem. So please stand with me in reading God's word. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble fear, or let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ear towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be contemned. condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we see in this song that God cares for his people by delivering them, listening to their prayers, and providing everything they need. Therefore, God's people should fear him, seek him, and praise him. Now, before we get into explaining this, I want to lay some rules down that just help us, in general, be able to read the Psalms better. <clears throat> Remember, these Psalms, they're a collection of poetry, and most of them were put to music, even though we've lost the chords. These poems are full of powerful symbolism that when understood rightly, really help us to understand God better and understand our emotions and how we can respond to him. These are not 
<clears throat> scientific or theological treaties, and so we don't come at them with a, the same rigidity and logic as we do an epistle. Psalms testify and can add nuances to theological truths, but we should not go to the Psalms looking to synthesize our theology from them. And like I've already said, they are great for giving us the words to express our relationship with God when we simply can't find them. So rule one, psalms are meant to be read as a whole. It's not good just to read one line or one paragraph of the psalm. Too often this takes place. They just pluck one line out of a psalm, they put it in a new song, and it's totally divorced from context and it kind of loses some of its meaning. It loses some of its punch because it's not in the context of the song. Now, there's truths revealed in these individual lines, but they simply work as part of the whole to reveal the truth the author is intending to convey. And so it's, as we read the whole thing, we're looking for the theme of that song. Most of the time... It's very evident. They're very repetitive in nature. Um, and the mood of the psalm is very evident. It's either a happy song of rejoice or a sad song, a serious song. This song here it has a um, wisdom theme to it. If you notice, a lot of the language is very similar to the Proverbs. <clears throat> and so... We need to look at all of this and then synthesize it on what is the one point that they're trying to get across. Now, most of the time, they will make this point stand out by stating, the, stating a theme and then restating it just with different words. So if you look at verse 1, for instance, we notice, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Right? So he's saying the same thing, just with different flowery language. He's not introducing a new truth here. He's just hammering that truth home. Or if we look down to 15 and 16, we see the contrast between the verses. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the land. So same idea, just stated in contrast to point it out. And the reason that they did this, the reason that they were so repetitive in their nature is because they didn't have the printing press. They didn't have the overhead projector. That was still a few day, days ahead. And so they needed songs to be memorable for the people to sing at temple and worship. So they made them simple. They made them repetitive so that everybody could memorize these quickly. And so people knew these, and so that as they walked around, they could be singing them in their heads, reminding them of the truth of who God is. Now the second rule is after we've read the whole, is to look at the individual verses of the psalm. Now I'm not talking about individual lines, okay? I'm talking about like a verse, like a verse in a song, a paragraph, a stanza for you musical people. Like modern music, usually a verse revolves around this central theme and helps to explain it or nuance it 
a little bit different, but it's still revolving around that theme. And so as we're going to pick apart these paragraphs today, we'll see that God has something to say about this main theme of God caring for his people. Now, another helpful tool to understand uh, these psalms is to look at the structure. Some poems are chiasms, which means it's A, B, C, B, A. The first and the last line mean the same, the second and the second to last line mean the same, and then in the middle there is the key point of what the author is trying to say. Some are just metered, you know, like our songs or poems. Some are just a simple A-B styling, where one reflects the other. And some, like our psalms today, are acrostics, meaning that each line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, example, if I was going to write an acrostic for my wife today, it would go something like this. Almighty God has blessed me with a wife. Breathtaking is her appearance. Compassion overflows from her. And so on and so forth. Now, these acrostics are often hard to identify since it gets lost in translation, unless we have any Hebrew scholars here. If you do, let me know. But thankfully, we do have a lot of good tools today that are available to us, like study Bibles, dictionaries, and commentaries that can help us to identify uh, these different structures. Now, acrostics are often harder to find the meaning of since the author is tied to the structure of the acrostic and not necessarily to one theme. And so, as you can even see in this poem here, that they bounce back and forth between ideas and just throw in a new idea here and, and come back to the main idea uh, later because they're following the A, B, C, D, E, F, G structure. But if we apply these hermeneutics to the Psalms, and hermeneutics is just a fancy word for how to study our Bible, we see that this song is about the relationship of God and his people. And it sings about God and how he cares for his people in difficult times and how his people should then respond to him. Now, this is not an exhaustive way of every way that God cares for his people, but we are going to talk about three different aspects today. And so God cares for his people by delivering them. Verses 4 to 7 and 17 to 21. Now, if we remember back to our background of this psalm, David was delivered from the, from the enemy king by acting crazy. But notice that David did not take credit for this. He did not say, oh, I was, I'm a smart guy, I'm a thinker. I, got, I tricked that king. No, he, he recognizes that it was God who delivered him from the king. And so he is praising God for this deliverance. And just like the first paragraph that we'll discuss later, David starts with his testimony about God saving him, and then he moves on to the plural, calling everybody to praise God for the deliverance and offering this promise that God will deliver everybody. And this should encourage us that this promise of deliverance is not just for David. It's not just for the soon-to-be king. It's not for the wealthy. It is for everybody who seeks God. Everybody who puts their faith in God has this promise that we will be 
delivered. But what are we delivered from? Well, let's look through the verses here. We see that God will rescue his people from fears in verse 4, shame, verse 5, troubles, verse 6 and 17, and many adversities in verse 19. And so this, this poem, this song is showing us that no matter what affliction we are facing, God will rescue it, rescue us from it. There's no problem, there's no fear, there's no evil that God cannot overcome to bring about our salvation. So whatever you're facing right now, whether it's loss of job, loss of family, a loved one, perhaps you're feeling like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills this month. I'm not sure how I'm going to get out of this debt. Perhaps you're just discouraged and beat up because it's just one thing after another. It just keeps piling up. And as soon as you get out of one, there's another thing right there. And you're just in misery. And you're crying out and you're going, God, why? Why? Well, remember, we serve a good and powerful God who is able to deliver us from any fear, any trouble, and any affliction that might come along. And notice how this promise is to rescue from the affliction, not to save us from having the affliction. Verse 19 makes this very clear. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. I'm sorry, bad stuff is going to happen to you. That's life. And this is going to sound harsh, but it's not you. Bad stuff happens to everyone. God does not hate you. God is not giving you more affliction than other people. Everybody is going to have a lot of affliction. But the good news is we have a Lord that will deliver us, what's it say? From all. Not just some, not just like the easy affliction, but from all affliction. And we learn from other scripture that this is true too, and we also see um, in verses like Romans 5, 4, and James 1, 2 to 4, that God often uses this affliction. He uses these hard times in the process of our sanctification. Many times God uses this affliction to root sin out of our lives. Because we're too stubborn to just simply read and obey God's word. And so God has to allow some consequences, some hard times to come into our lives in order for us to change. Other times he uses this to grow our faith. Because we see that God is faithful. We see that God does in fact deliver us from these hard times. And so the next time that we go through a hard time, we can have confidence in God that he will see us through this. And other times, he just simply uses it to keep us dependent upon him. Because if it wasn't for these hard times, we'd forget about God. And, and, and such is the cycle that many of us go through in our life, right? Life is good, and we just kind of forget to pray. 
And we kind of forget that God is the one that's blessing us right now and causing life to go good, right? But then something bad happens or we're down here and then we are finally on our knees remembering that we need God. And so if we just simply seek him and fear him, we could break this cycle and we could just stay dependent upon him. But it doesn't matter the cause or the purpose of the affliction we're going through because we know that we serve a God that will get us through these times. We have a God who is in control of everything in the world and he is good and he loves us and he will protect us. Verse 20 and 21 explain this. Verse 20 tells us that our bones will not be broken. And this is an illustration meaning total destruction, right? To have your bone broken back in those days pretty much meant you're a goner, right? You're not going to be able to get around. You're, if you're in battle, like, you're done. Other people can't help you. And so we may be bruised, but we will not be broken. We will not be left in a condition that we cannot survive. It's just a wonderful promise. So it's going to hurt a little bit, but God loves us and God is faithful and he is not going to put us in a position that we can't survive, that we can't get through whatever we're going through. Now the opposite is true of the wicked. We're told that they will be slain, they will be condemned. And it's these facts that we need to remember. It's this promise that we can hold on to when sorrows like sea billows roll and Satan should buffet and trials should come. But yet we can stand and say, it is well with our souls because of these truths, because of the God that we serve. And we can continue on in perseverance because our faith and our contentment are in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and not in our present circumstances. We can also comfort people in times of distress with these facts, that there is a God in heaven who will deliver them from their current trials and everything to come in the future. And we don't have to explain why they're going through this, and we don't have to fix it for them, though God may use you to fix it for them. But we can join in their sorrow with them. We can cry with them. We can, we can say with them, this sucks. But there is a good and faithful God who knows all the answers and has all the power to fix whatever you're going through. The second way in which God cares for us is to listening to our prayers. Right alongside God's deliverance, you see prayer back in verses 4 to 7. We are the ones to pray to God, and he is the one who listens to our prayers. And what a great comfort this is to know that God hears and answers our prayers. What a great comfort it is to know that God loves us. And he's not too busy. He's not bothered, but actually enjoys hearing our prayers. 
There's a movie, Bruce Almighty. I encourage you to YouTube the clip after the sermon. Just YouTube uh, Bruce Almighty prayer requests. And in the movie, you see um, Bruce has got all the powers of God here, and so he starts hearing all these voices coming to him at one time of all the prayer requests. And so he creates like this system to, to file them. And so he says, put them all in files. And there's like oh, millions of file cabinets. He's like, ah, oh, this won't work. Sticky notes, put them all in sticky notes. And his entire house is covered in sticky notes. He's like, no, no, I need something. And uh, email. So he takes all prayer requests and he puts them in email. And he opens it up and it's like downloading new emails. And it's like millions. And so he's like, oh, I gotta get to work. And He's like, well, that should have made a dent. Clicks refresh. And there's billions and billions more of email. And he's just like, I'm done. I give up. I don't want to deal with this. Yes to all. Right? And it's a silly illustration to really show that how big God is, how loving God is, how patient, and really how powerful he is. That he hears all of the prayer requests from all the billions of people that are on this earth. And he hears them all individually. And he answers them all individually in how he knows is the best response. Now, it might not be us, our favorite response. It might not be what we choose, but it is what is best for us. And it may take longer than we want but we have a God who is hearing our prayer requests and answering them. And so when troubles come your way, be confident that God loves you and be confident that God hears your prayers. Remember that it's going to take longer. It's not going to be the way you want. But God will answer your prayers. And David is here giving witness to that fact. And this church is standing here as a witness to the fact that God answers prayers. And I'm sure there's many of you out there who are witnesses that God answers prayers. And so this week in your bridge groups would be a great time to share that encouragement with other people of how God has answered prayer, how God has delivered you out of your hard times because you cried out to him. The last thing that we're going to talk about today in God's care for us believers is providing for them. Verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> Remember, David was on the run. He had no money or supplies. But yet God faithfully provided him with everything he needed. And that is why he's telling everyone to taste and see that the Lord is good for he provides everything we need. I imagine David out in the wilderness running for his life with no food, and he is very, very hungry. And so when God provides for him, I think that's why he's using this choice of language here, his poetic license to taste God, because he tasted the food that God had provided for him so that he would not die. And he further illustrates this by point by pointing to nature. He uses the king of the jungle, the lion, to show that even the most powerful creature on earth is unable to provide for himself. 
He still has lack. He still has times that he goes hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack anything good. And so God is saying, or David is saying that God is more powerful than the lion of the earth. God is more able to do what everything. And all we simply have to do is seek him. And he will provide everything that we need. So we've spent a lot of time looking at what God does for his people. And so now I want to flip the coin and look at what, who his people are and how they should respond to what God has done. This verse says that God's people are those who fear him. Verses 9 and 11 through 14. The Bible uses this term a lot, the fear of God. But often we don't really fully understand what it means. There's kind of two sides to it. On this side, it's a very unhealthy fear of God where we are afraid of his wrath. We think that God is simply going to strike us with a lightning bolt for every bad thing we do, right? And this keeps many people from trusting in God because they're just too afraid of them or they're living their lives practically out of fear and therefore become very legalistic because they're just trying to appease God so that he's not angry with him. And then on the other side, we have the grace-only people, and oh, God is love, and, and God, he won't hurt people, and he won't punish people. But they forget that God is both. God is love, but God is also wrath. God is merciful, but he is also just. <clears throat> and so, if we look at more of the context around this word, we really see that it's just another way of saying those who have faith in God. In fact, when non-Jewish believers uh, put their faith in Christ, they were called God-fearers instead of Jews. And so the, this idea of fearing the God is, brings with it this idea of respect, this idea of awe, of putting God in his proper place. And isn't that what faith is? We are putting God in his proper place. We are understanding just how powerful and good and righteous of a God he is. And therefore we trust and obey who he is. Faith. And when we trust God, we're driven to this obedience. We understand that he is so perfect and that his ways are what is best for our lives. And so this is what David points out in verses 13 and 14. Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. And this is much more of a deeper idea than we just read and think, right? This is not calling us simply to acts of morality. This is not just calling us to not have a potty mouth. Because it's very easy to not say things, but our inside, our heart, is still evil and crooked. Jesus himself said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Meaning if we purify our inside, the outside will follow suit. If we simply have the appearance of holiness, but our heart, soul, and mind are polluted with sin, 
then we're just as bad as the Pharisees that Jesus was confronting when he said these words. If we truly want to keep our mouth from speaking evil, then we must change the desires of our heart, the thoughts of our mind, and the destinations of our souls. We must take on the thoughts and desires of God our Father. We must be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And it's only through the saving grace from Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit that our hearts and minds and souls will be changed. And so as we read the Bible, as we go to church, as we pray, as we talk, as we commune with God and we have fellowship with God, He changes us. He transforms us. He gives us our desire, His desires and He places them in our hearts. And that's why being in the Word and being in prayer are so crucial to transforming our minds and our heart. And to become those people who don't speak evil. And when Christ's righteous sacrifice is applied, we receive the forgiveness of all that sin. The Bible talks lots about this in Romans and just this whole cleansing of our lives and being set free from the power of sin and becoming a slave to righteousness. We receive a heart transplant when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we fear the Lord. If you haven't put your faith in God, if you're not a God-fearer, I want you to know that there is a day coming where God will take those who believe in him to heaven. And those who have not yet trusted in him will be sent to eternal punishment. And that day is very near. So I encourage you to fear God. Accept his free gift of salvation through the death and resurrection of of his son, Jesus Christ. Crown God as king of your life. Enjoy the many blessings that come through having a relationship with him that we've just talked about. The second part really ties in with the first net. We're called to seek God, right? Because this is really part of fearing God. We're in reverence to him. We understand that we need him. We understand that he is in control, that he directs our steps in life. And so therefore we need to seek him. Right? We need to put forth the effort to know him. Reading the Bible, prayer. Those are the two biggest ways that we seek God. We can also have godly wisdom, right? Talking to other people who know and seek God. And a big part of that is through the church where we collectively come here on Sundays to worship God, but also to seek God. To have God show us what he would want us to do as a body of believers. That's part of bridge groups, right? We're coming together to talk about, to encourage one another in following after God and to seeking him and to hear his voice for us and then carrying it out. And the last thing that we are to do in response to what God has done for us is to praise him. Verses 1 through 3. And so we will conclude with the beginning of this song. So in light of everything that God has done for David and the people, our only option is to praise him. 
And this is what David points out. That no matter what is going on in your life, we are to praise God. Our praise are to be continually be on our lips. We're constantly supposed to be talking about who God is and all the wonderful things that he has done. David has tasted the Lord and seen that the Lord is indeed good and that the Lord is faithful to deliver him from every circumstance. And there's this transition in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 is Daniel's personal testimony where verse 3 is his charge to do just that, to join him in praising God for what he has done for David, but also what he has done for each and every one of us. We should be like, you know, that, the teenager that's in love, right? You all know the annoying kind that just can't stop talking about how great his, his lover is, right? You all know the type, just, oh my God, blah, 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 blah. They did this and this and this and this, and they're so awesome, and they're just the best person ever. That should be us with God. The fact that we're here today, the fact that we didn't get in a car wreck with this horrible wind and snow, the fact that we had live in a country where we're free to celebrate our many, many blessings that God has given us. All of this should cause us to constantly be praising God. And when we're in the hard times, we can still praise God because God is still faithful. God is still there. God is still going to deliver you from whatever circumstance you're going through. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know why you're going through it. I don't know how much longer it's going to last. But there is a God in heaven. And I just want to praise on him a little bit and just tell you he's delivered me from countless and countless things. The fact that I'm standing up here preaching to you is testimony that God delivers, that God gets people out of tough circumstances. And so that's another thing you can do this week and share your stories about how God, but praise God. Praise God for the deliverance he's given you. To remind yourself and to remind others that God is faithful to deliver us. And so if you're going through something right now, or and if you're not, don't worry, it's coming. Verse 19. Remember God. Remember his character. Fear him, seek him, and praise him. Because he will get you through this. I referenced at the beginning of the sermon a great hymn. And we're going to sing this hymn, and so if the worship team can come back up at this moment. And as they're coming up, I want to tell you the story behind this powerful hymn. Because, like I said, this song already is awesome. But when you, tr- when you know the circumstances of the author who wrote it, it just gives it just an extra kick. So this song, It Is Well With My Soul, it was written by Horatio Spafford. He was a young, successful businessman in, and a devout Christian who grew up in Chicago. <clears throat> His only son died shortly before the great Chicago fire. And then in the fire, he lost everything. Lost all of his business, all of his development. And so seeking some rest from this, he decided to take his four daughters and his wife and join D.L. Moody 
on an evangelistic campaign over in Great Britain. But as they were about to leave, some business came up, and so he was forced to stay back. But he sent on his wife and family, put them on the ship, and he said, I'll, I'll join you in a few days. But when that few days came, he received notice that the ship that his family was on had struck another ship. And the ship had sunk in a mere 14 minutes. And that only his wife was the survivor in his family. As legend has it, that he penned down these words as he crossed the, the site of the crash. And he wrote down, It is well with my soul. Worship you.